So, are you any good at trivia? How are you at your, at your trivia here? I'll give, you, I'll give you an easy one, maybe. What is the state bird of South Carolina? Very good, Stan Lappers. The Carolina Wren. Nice, Carolina Wren. Carolina Wren officially became the state bird in 1948. What was the state bird before 1948? Nice. Who said mockingbird? That was impressive. The mockingbird was the state bird before 1948. That's no sign on your age. We just know you got good history. All right, let's, let's up the ante just a little bit. What is the city bird of Cape Coral, Florida? <laughs> Come on, it's on the tip of your tongue, right? <laughs> Seagull. That's a good guess. I like that one. Well, let me see if this will help you a little bit. Yesterday was the 15th annual Southwest Florida Burrowing Owl Festival in Cape Coral. So that should help you a little bit. Yeah, that's right. The uh, city bird of Cape Coral is the burrowing owl. So yesterday for a $5 donation, you could have gone to the festival and experienced normal festival stuff, activities like crafts and, and music and some food vendors. But also for your donation of $5, you could have also participated in things like this. A bus tour to local burrowing owl burrows. Demonstrations on burrowing owl burrow maintenance and demonstrations on starter burrows. That is a lot of burrowing. The starter burrow demonstration had a very interesting tip. According to Honey Phillips, the vice president of the group sponsoring the festival, the Cape Coral Friends of Wildlife, she said that if you went to the starter burrow demonstration, you would learn this. They'll show how to dig a hole the proper hole, and put in a perch. <laughs> I just love the proper hole. I mean, I've just never heard anybody say, I'm going to show you how to dig a proper hole. So there is a certain kind of hole that has to be dug, a certain way that you dig that hole to make a starter burrow for a burrowing owl. There's a certain way to do it. It is a proper hole. Now, most of us know how to dig a hole, right? I mean, spring's around the corner, or technically maybe has already shown up, and we'll be out in the yards, and we know how to dig a hole and, and plant some flowers and plant some new plants. Some of us, as we're driving to the restaurant with our spouse, know how to dig a hole before we get there. Uh, we, we, we know the aspects of what it means to dig a hole, but, but do you know how to dig a proper hole? Do you know how to dig a proper hole? Well, what kind of hole are we talking about? Well, Jesus is going to help us answer that question. We'll be looking today at Luke 12, uh, beginning with verse 39. Luke 12, beginning with verse 39. And Jesus says, But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So imagine Friday afternoon you get a phone call from a number that you don't recognize. And you look at that number and decide not to answer a few minutes later, you have a voicemail that pops up, and you listen to the voicemail. And the voicemail goes something like this. Uh, hey, uh, my name's Danny. Uh, me and my friend Rusty, we're going to be coming by your house around 9 o'clock tonight, and we're going to be stealing some of your stuff. 
Uh, on the way, we'll probably pick up some sandwiches, some shrimp cocktails, and, and if we have any left, we'll leave them in the refrigerator for you guys when you get home. Uh, but we'll, we'll take care of everything, and, and thanks a lot. You guys have fun at the Burrowing Owl Festival concert tonight, and when you get home, you know, your, some of your stuff will be gone. It, that's not how it works, right? <laughs> Thieves don't call and give you their stealing schedule. The word for broken here, the verb that Jesus uses, means to dig through. In ancient times, what a thief would do is they would let everybody get fast asleep. And then in the middle of the night when everyone's sleeping, they would go and dig a hole through the mud wall of the house. They'd crawl in through the hole, steal their stuff, and crawl back out. That is how they would steal. But the reality is, is this is language that everybody in the crowd listening to Jesus would have understood. Jesus isn't using hard language here. When he said broken into to dig through, everybody in the crowd would know what that means. And everybody in the crowd would know that a thief would not tell you when he was coming in the middle of the night to dig a hole in the wall of your house. Because if the thief did tell you that, then you would be ready for that thief. Now some of this seems a little bit common sense. So why in the world is Jesus saying any of this? Why is he talking about a thief coming in the middle of the night? Well, he explains why. Listen to verse 40. You too, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus is saying all this because it's a warning that he's giving. It's not a warning that he's going to break into our house and steal our stuff. It's a different kind of warning. It's a warning that nobody knows when he is coming back. So just imagine, if you will, if Jesus returns five minutes from right now. Would that be a dream come true for you? Or would it be a dread instead of a dream? The notion that, that Jesus would be coming back in five minutes, would that be something exciting to you or something terrifying to you? Now, I'm not trying to foolishly scare you. I'm trying to scare you from being a fool. Where are you with Jesus right now? Where, where do you stand with this person of Jesus Christ? Are you only living on a prayer that you prayed a, a long time ago, one day or one night? Or are you confident that you're saved? Are you, are you confident that you're truly following Jesus? And how would you know if you were truly following Jesus? Well, have you dug a proper hole? And what's a proper hole in this conversation? Well, Apostle Paul helps us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Have you truly been crucified with Christ? Have you died to the old self, buried the old self in the proper hole? And are you living for Christ today? What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? I mean, that sounds like kind of fancy church language. I've given you this definition before, but I think it's, it's very clear and very helpful. A Christian is not a person who believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. Satan believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. Rather, a Christian is a person who has died with Christ, whose stiff neck has been broken, whose brazen forehead has been shattered, whose stony heart has been crushed, whose pride has been slain, and whose life is now mastered by Jesus Christ. So if Jesus returns in the next five minutes, has that happened 
to you? Has that sense of brokenness happened in your life? Is Jesus your Savior and your friend, but also very clearly, is Jesus your master? Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your Lord? Or is Jesus more like a fishing buddy to you? Is Jesus more like a holiday friend? You know, somebody you'll catch up with a few times a year on special occasions? Or is Jesus like a, a spiritual insurance agent that if you really, really have a, a big problem, you'll, you'll call him and, and see if he can help? Listen, make no mistake, when you read through the pages of the whole of the Bible, particularly the direct words of Jesus, when Jesus calls a person to follow after him, he is calling that person to die, to be crucified to self, to die to self, and to live for him. So what does it mean to die to yourself? Well, it means that you don't live for your glory and your fame. That's not the priority. Your main priority, your main desire is to know Jesus Christ more and to help people find and know Jesus Christ more. Or maybe asked a different way, if you are dying to yourself, if you are crucified with Christ, what does it look like in your life? Well, here's what it looks like. For lack of a better word, it it means you're not here to get your way. To be crucified with Christ means that, that my priority and my opinion is not a priority. To be crucified with Christ means that your opinion is not a priority. To be crucified with Christ means what I want is not a priority. And to be crucified with Christ means what you want is not a priority. The priority for believers is what has Jesus told me to do? That's the priority. What what has Jesus told me to do? So what has Jesus told us to do? Well, here's just a couple of things. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 39. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and a second thing very similar to that, is you will love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. There's another thing Jesus told us to do, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to do, All that I commanded you. Now, did Jesus tell us to do more than just those things? Yes, he did. But but here's a tip. If you can get those in gear, the rest of the things will fall into place. And so just an evaluation of your heart and your mind now. How are you doing at just those few things that Jesus has told us to do? How are you doing at loving God first and most? How are you doing at loving your spouse and your kids and your family members and your friends in the same way that you love yourself? How are you doing at loving complete strangers in the same way that you love yourself? How are you doing at directly communicating to people that you are a follower of Jesus? And how are you doing at indirectly communicating to people that you are a follower of Jesus? And how are you doing at making sure that the gospel gets out of this room and off of this campus? How are you doing at making sure that the gospel gets a long way far beyond just Holland Avenue Baptist Church and far beyond Casey and far beyond West Columbia? 
Jesus says, if you're a Christian, those are priorities. That, that's how Jesus talked. Those are priorities. They're not just things we every now and then do. They're priorities. So just all of us, looking back over the last seven days of our lives, how have we done with those priorities that Jesus gave to us as professing Christians? And why would we do that to begin with? Why would we make those things priorities? Why would we make it a priority to dig a proper hole? Why would we make it a priority to be crucified with Christ, to die to ourselves and live with him? Why would we do that? Listen to the rest of what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, Jesus loved me. Now, there might be somebody that says, I don't know. That didn't sound very appealing to me. I mean, my life is hard. My life is tough. Things at home are, are rough. Things at, at work are work. I'm, I'm having a hard time making ends meet. I'm, I'm stressed out about life. This world is driving me crazy. I don't want someone who loved me. I want someone who loves I want someone who's looking out for me right now. Well, don't miss the beauty of Paul using the past tense. See, he did it on purpose. See, he's communicating that Jesus loved him before he even knew who Jesus was. Paul says, Jesus loved me before I even cared who he was. Jesus loved me before I even existed. But it's not just love from Jesus. Paul's taking it beyond that. Paul says, Jesus loved me. He died for me when I hated him. Jesus loved me. He died for me when I was persecuting and killing his closest friends. Jesus loved me. He gave himself up for me. Even me. Even me. You see, the reality is the love of Jesus in the past is amazing because of what he has done. But the love of Jesus is not just past tense. The love of Jesus is past and it's present and it's future. Jesus loved, Jesus loves, and Jesus will love forever and ever and ever. Let me just let you know, your spouse and your kids and your parents and your best gal pal and your best fishing buddy can never promise you that. No human being has the ability to love forever. Only the living Savior, Jesus Christ. His love is everlasting. When you lay your head down at night to go to sleep, when you wake up in the morning, I want you to know there are no greater words in the universe than to be able to tell yourself, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you believing in that? Are you trusting in that? Are you relying in that? Are you clinging to that as your ultimate hope in this life and in the life to come? If so, then you will be ready whenever Jesus returns. If you are clinging to your salvation as the ultimate hope of your life, then you will be ready whenever Jesus comes. But if not, 
then I plead with you to heed this warning from Jesus. It's very clear. He is telling us that we do not know when he will return. So we need to get ready and we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And so in the middle of this strong statement from Jesus, this warning, Peter interrupts for a second. And he interrupts with a question. This is what Peter says. Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Someone said it's like Peter is raising his hand. Um, Jesus, is this going to be on the test? I mean, do I really need to write this down? I mean, this isn't for us, right? I and mean, we're, we're the disciples. We're your church guys. So we don't need to listen to this be ready stuff, right? This is for these other people, right, Jesus? So how does Jesus respond to Peter's question? Look at verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. This is a normal pattern that Jesus used. When asked a question, he would respond with a question. And so he says, all right, so Peter, you're wondering if this stuff about being ready is for you or if it's for other people. Well, in order for you to answer that question, Peter, you need to answer this question first. Are you a faithful servant? Can you be counted on? Can you be trusted? Can you be depended on for the responsibilities that you'll be given? Or, or will you do the very least that you have to and, and whatever you have to just to get by? Jesus Christ is not looking for people who know how to call the church office and ask the pastor and the staff to do ministry. Jesus is not looking for people who are just living on a prayer from some years ago that they may or may not even remember how to say. Jesus is looking for servants. Jesus is, is looking for people who will take gospel initiative. So what does that mean? Well, let me ask it a different way. How do you know if you will be ready when Jesus returns? How do you know that you'll be ready when Jesus returns? Well, Jesus says that the way that you will know that you are ready is if you are serving. If you're taking the gospel and you're, you're living out the gospel in your life, that you're not waiting for an announcement from the pulpit, you're not waiting for someone to ask, but you're, you're taking your salvation and you are living out your salvation. And you're doing it at home and you're doing it at the gas station and you're doing it at work and at school. You're, you're just taking this song about Jesus being mighty to save, this song about knowing who it is that we believe in, these songs that we sing, that, that these songs go out of this room and into our lives that we are loving God, we are serving God, we are loving people, we are serving people, that we're, we're making disciples. We're, we're trying to make sure that we're part of a group of people that are making sure that the gospel gets to places that it's never been before. Jesus says people who are ready, they're doing those things. But is there any benefit? Anything we get out of being ready? Well, look at what Jesus says next in verse 43 and 44. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Blessed and happy and satisfied. Those are the benefits of being ready. Those are the benefits of serving. Blessed, happy, and satisfied. 
you know, that stuff that we hate. You know, those things we don't really want in our life, right? Blessed and happy and satisfied is the person that follows Jesus, that loves Jesus, that obeys Jesus, and serves other people in the name of Jesus, not because they have to, but because they get to. It is the joy of their life to do anything for the name of Jesus. They aren't just doing it for a little while on Sunday. They, they do it as part of their whole life. Now, living for Jesus with all of your life doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor. It doesn't mean you have to be a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't mean you have to be a missionary. Living for Jesus with all of your life just means that your main goal is, how can I, through what I do today, get people to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, though, we think we have to be a pastor and a preacher and a missionary, but you don't. I love what Tim Challey says. I came across this a few weeks ago in my reading. If you're a mother and you simply cuddle and comfort your crying child, you are doing a good work that glorifies God because you do it for the benefit of your child. That's really simple and really cool. Let me say this. That doesn't mean that every single mother is automatically saved and automatically a Christian just because they've comforted their child. What it does mean is that this week, some of the most random, common things that you will do this week, you can do for the glory of God and draw attention to Jesus Christ. In the simplest things of life, you can help others find Christ and be ready. That's what it means to serve. But what if you aren't like this servant? What if you aren't serving the Lord? What if, what if you're just kind of doing the opposite of what Jesus said the blessed and happy and satisfied people were doing? Well, Jesus brings that up in conversation. Listen to verse 45. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, it's interesting, right? So the, the servant is like, ah, who knows when the master will be back. I'm just going to do whatever I want to. There's a lot of people that say, hey, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming back. I, it could be another 2,000. I don't know. Do we really need to be very urgent about this? Is this really that big a deal? And what happens is the, the concept of the glory of God and the concept of proclaiming the gospel, they're not the priority anymore. There's, there's new priorities. And what happens is, as the glory of God fades away, as the, as the glory of the gospel begins to fade away, then there's a lot of things that, that rush in to replace it. And over time, a person might become a very self-centered jerk, only thinking about themselves, just obsessed with rest and leisure and relaxation, obsessed with reality TV, obsessed with sports and hobbies, obsessed with, with everything else but anything that is good and holy and pure and eternal. And they might even start getting a little pushy. Might start fighting to get their way at home, fighting to get their way just about anywhere and determine that their opinion is the opinion that everybody should be listening to. Welcome to 2017, right? Listen, it is easy for us to point the fingers at the pundits on TV. It is. It's easy for us to point the fingers at the protesters all over the world and all over our country. But friend, let us be honest with ourselves. Self-centeredness, fighting to get our way, 
fighting for our opinion to be the one that everyone needs to listen to. That type of attitude is alive and well in the average Christian home and the average Christian church. You see, the enemy never stops trying to pull us away from the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is not a corner of this world and not a corner of your house and not a corner of this church that the enemy is not constantly trying to tell us the glory of God is not that great. And the salvation of Jesus is is just okay, but it's not. It's not. It is so much greater than anything we can possibly imagine. And so this servant said, "Eh, who knows when the master's coming back. And they just kind of started doing their own thing. But it wasn't just they started doing their own thing. They moved beyond just self-centeredness. And they started being evil. They started pursuing immorality and violence. And what does Jesus say is going to happen to them? Listen to verse 46. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces. And assign him a place with the unbelievers. Well, that's no Hallmark card, right? See, the servant knew exactly what he was supposed to do. But he chose to just forget the master, just ignore the master. Ah, he'll be back later. I'm not going to be concerned about that. And it wasn't just that he was lazy and didn't do what the master said. He went beyond that, and he really turned evil. And he started doing violent and terrible and awful things to other people. And Jesus says the master will come back, and when he finds that servant doing that, he'll cut him up into pieces and put the pieces outside of his land. Can you imagine being in this crowd that day? Now, now in ancient times, things like this happened. In fact, we even have occurrences of this in the Old Testament. And and even today, sadly, I'm sure that in certain parts of the world, vile, evil things like this are still happening. And so it's a strong language from Jesus about a servant who just said, I don't care what the master said. I'm going to do whatever I want. But what if the servant wasn't so bad? What if one of the servants was not evil and, and violent and immoral and awful to other people? What if, what if they were just lazy and, and ignored what the master said? Well, Jesus has something for them, verse 47. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. Now, many lashes sounds a whole lot better than being cut up into pieces, right? So, so there's at least a degree here. Of grace. But this person just said, you know what? I'm I'm just not gonna do what the master said. I know what he said, I'm I'm just not going to do it. But what if the servant didn't know what the master said? What if the servant was out in the field working? Or what if the the servant was was off at the market and and then they came back and, and they found out that the master had left for a long journey? And they found out, oh well, you know, the master is gone, but they didn't hear the instructions from the master, and nobody told them what the master said. What about them? Jesus addresses them. Verse 48, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. So, so just a few lashes for the one that didn't know the instructions. But honestly, we, we probably are all a little tempted to go, well, why did they receive any lashes? I mean, why did they get beaten at all? I mean, they didn't even know the instructions that the master left, so why did they get in trouble? 
Now, don't mistake, Jesus says this servant is not innocent. This servant still did things worthy of a flogging. Like imagine that, that the servant came back from being in the field or being in the market, and, and they get back and they hear that the master's gone. And they don't hear the instructions the master left, but they're like, I don't know, the master's going to be gone. I think I'm just going to work one day a week. I think I'm just going to work on Sundays, and then I'll take Monday through Saturday off. See, that's not what he was supposed to do. So he's still being disobedient. There's still not perfect innocence with any of the servants. So the question is, how do we apply any of this to us, right? I mean, come on now. What am I supposed to do with masters and servants and stewards and slaves and people being cut up into pieces and flogged? I need you to help me figure out what I'm supposed to do that with a day when I go to lunch today. Come on. So how do we apply the strong language from Jesus? Well, I would say, let's just let Jesus apply the strong language. Look what he says in the last part of verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Let me put it this way. If you know what Jesus has told you to do, then do it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't, don't put it off. Don't expect somebody else to carry your weight. According to everything that Jesus says, if you know what I have told you to do, just, just do it. You will be held accountable, not for what you don't know, but what you do know and you're just ignoring. I know this is maybe a bit simplified, but, but I think maybe the best way to apply this is to take the bird's eye view of this illustration from Jesus. Every single servant in this story is going to end up in only one of two categories. Category one is blessed and happy and satisfied. Category two is cut up into pieces or beaten. This is not hard math, right? <laughs> We want to do everything we can with how we live our life to be in category one, not in category two. So the the overall message from Jesus is not hard to figure out. If I want to be blessed and happy and satisfied, I need to be ready. I need to be serving. I don't need to wait till next Sunday. I don't need to wait till next year. I need to obey the things that Jesus has asked me to do today. Namely, love God first and most. Love my neighbor in the same way I love myself. And make sure that I'm doing what I can so that people will hear about Jesus. Those are just three things he's asked us to do. I heard about this in a different way this week. Think of the the difference between a cat and a pig. All right, A cat... And a pig. Jeff Thomas says this. A cat falls into mud and the cat gets out as fast as it can. It goes to the bank and begins a meticulous task of cleaning all of its fur. It is concerned that it is filthy and it will not cease until it is clean. That is a cat. If you got a cat, you know exactly what he just said. We grew up with cats around our house. And man, I'm telling you, those cats were always off to the side trying to make sure they're all perfectly clean. So so a cat doesn't doesn't want to be dirty. Then he moves on to the pig. A pig, on the other hand, falls into mud and gladly wallows in it, considering it to be its element. That's a pretty clear picture, right? The cat and the pig have dramatically different responses to the mud. 
He goes on to say this. When the master visits his estate that is being run by a man who has no thought of the Lord's eye upon him or of giving an account to the Lord for his life, who does he find in charge, a cat or a pig? Does he find a man grieving over his foulness and seeking to purify himself? No, he finds a pig. The challenge for us is to live in such a way that when Jesus returns, he won't find a pig in our clothes carrying around our ID. But rather that he would find people that have dug proper holes. He would find people that embrace what it means to be crucified with Christ, embrace what it means to die to self, embrace what it means to be loved by Jesus and to live for Jesus. In other words, that Jesus would come and and he would find people who are ready. Ready to love God first and most. Ready to love their spouses and their kids and their family and their friends in the same way that they love themselves. Ready to love lost people who have never heard the gospel. Ready to love complete strangers in the same way that they love themselves. Ready to make sure that the gospel gets to all peoples and all tribes and all languages and all nations and not just that it gets there but that disciples are made. In other words, the the whole picture that Jesus paints is that being ready means that when he returns, that he finds us still stunned, still amazed, still in tears, still overwhelmed that he loved us and gave himself up for us. Isaac Watts, looking at the cross, said this. See from his head, his hands, his feet, did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Has love and, and sorrow ever met like this? No. And then he goes on to write this. Love so amazing, so divine. It does demand my soul. My life, my all. Let us be ready. Let us be serving. And let us see that the love of Jesus is worth our lives.